Greetings and welcome to another episode of From John to Justin, where I started out looking at every Prime Minister in Canadian history, and we're right in the middle of every opposition leader who never became Prime Minister, but we took a break from that, because an election was called. So right now I'm doing 36 election episodes in a row, to coincide with our 36 day election period. If you want to support the podcast, you can, for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. Don't forget, I have three other podcasts out there. Canadian History X, which releases every Wednesday and Saturday. Canada's Great War, which releases every single Sunday. And Coast to Coast, which releases every single Thursday. I do all of these full-time. The writing, the research, everything. I do it every day, all day. And it's a lot of work. So, any dollars you give help keep it all going, and I'll make sure to thank you on the air and throughout my social media. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. If the 1957 election was the arrival of Diefenbaker, then the 1958 election would be his greatest triumph. In fact, for the Progressive Conservative Party, it would be a success they scarcely could believe. Due to the Diefenbaker and the Progressive Conservatives winning a minority government in 1957, it was less than a year later that Canada was once again going to the polls. The Liberals were now led by a new man, but one who had a lot of name recognition thanks to his Nobel Peace Prize, Lester B. Pearson. Louis Saint Laurent had resigned as leader and now the hopes of the party to return to glory fell on Pearson. As I had talked about in my episode about Lester B. Pearson, when he first became leader, he recommended that the Governor-General allow the Liberals to form a government without an election due to the economic downturn. Pearson would say in that speech in the House of Commons, quote, I would be prepared, if called upon, to form a government of ending the Tory pause and getting this country back on the Liberal highway of progress from which we have temporarily diverted, end quote. What followed? was a two-hour speech from Diefenbaker that completely obliterated Pearson in Parliament. Pearson would say later that Diefenbaker tore him to shreds, and he knew that it was a mistake as soon as he started speaking. He would add, quote, No one has ever started off worse than I did. End quote. The incident also gave Diefenbaker the opportunity to call a snap election in the hopes of winning a majority. On February 1, 1958, the Governor-General accepted Diefenbaker's request to dissolve Parliament. During the campaign, a Gallup poll found that 50% of Canadians felt that Diefenbaker was the best man for Prime Minister, while 27% said the same of Pearson. Diefenbaker also had high approval ratings. In September of 1957, he sat at 52%, with less than 5% saying they disproved of him. Upon the election call, Diefenbaker once again displayed brilliance on the campaign trail. The Progressive Conservatives gave their vision of a one Canada, while also promising to develop the North with roads and resources. In speaking of his vision of a One Canada, Diefenbaker would state, quote, This is the vision, One Canada, One Canada where Canadians will have preserved to them the control of their own economic and political destiny. Canadians realize your opportunities. This is the message I give you, my fellow Canadians, not one of defeatism, jobs, jobs for hundreds of thousands of Canadians, a new vision, a new hope, a new soul for Canada. End quote. Diefenbaker was incredibly popular across Canada, and his speeches were often interrupted with cheers as thousands went to his rallies. I know what unemployment is. They, don't, they can't tell me about that. 
And I say to those that are out of work that we've acted, we've done that which the United States is now commencing to do. I ask to that this, that as long as I am Prime Minister of this country, no man or woman is going to be allowed to suffer deficit or no deficit. Uh, Mr. Pickerskill said the other day, uh, I suppose our defeat did us no harm because the Liberal Party had run out of ideas. Well, ladies and gentlemen, they ran out of ideas on June the 10th, and if they've made such a tremendous improvement as is apparent since then, in those few months, what will they do? if we give them four or five years of opposition further in order to... On stops along the way, many Canadians would simply try to reach out to touch Diefenbaker. In his open campaign speech on February 12, 1958, Diefenbaker would say, quote, Pearson said only a couple weeks ago that an election is at hand. They ask now, why is there an election? We called the election because it was called for called for by the need for a stable government to face the larger problems now facing Canada on a long-term basis. Called for because the people of Canada as a whole realize the possibility of a strong and effective government cannot be achieved without there being a majority." End quote. The Conservatives started to put a large amount of money into their campaign, $2.5 million, double what they had in 1957 and that allowed for every candidate across the country to have $6,000 for their campaign, which would equal $56,000 today. The Liberals ran on a campaign that was disorganized, promising increases to old social policies and promising things such as health insurance. Pearson also took a more team approach to campaigning and did not make any grand leadership statements as Diefenbaker did. We have now reached the point in unemployment more dangerous than at any time since the depression because nearly one out of every ten people in this country in the labor force of this country is out of work and if you add to that 9.5 percent the fact that 25 percent of the rest who are working are working short time under 35 hours a week you get some indication of the extent of the problem now this isn't a problem that we can't solve Unless the world goes to peace. This doesn't mean we're going to go back into depression days. If government had any sense at all. One reason why we shouldn't have a depression is that since the last depression under liberal governments, we have built up a whole structure of social security payments which act as a cushion against the depression. Since 1957, the number of eligible voters had also increased by 700,000, as well as high immigration to Canada. Things would happen in this election that would influence the result heavily. The first was the support of Quebec for the Conservative Party, which rose for the first time since the conscription crisis of 1917. Premier Maurice Duplessis would align with the Progressive Conservatives, giving Diefenbaker a huge boost. The other thing that influenced the election was the total collapse of the Social Credit Party, which had existed for years and been a major force in Alberta. This election, though, the party would see its support begin to fall in popularity as its supporters aligned themselves with the Progressive Conservatives. As with the 1957 election, this election would be played out on television. With parties beginning to realize the importance of television, 
and complaints. On March 21st, the CBC reported there were a number of complaints from candidates about the election coverage, mostly coming from the progressive conservatives and the liberals. At the time, the CBC had not defined its election formula, and editors did not measure the time given to Diefenbaker or Pearson in terms of minutes, only that a fair amount of coverage be given. A few days before the election, Pearson travelled into the United States briefly, with many people believing this was the first time a potential Prime Minister had gone to America during a campaign. In fact, Sir Robert Borden had done the same in 1908, when speaking at the Haskell Library in Stansted, Quebec. At the time, the north part of the library was in Canada, and the south part was in America. Two days before the election, Diefenbaker was back in Ottawa where he leveled an attack on Pearson, stating, quote, You want to know what will be the next thing in their platform? Just look at the record and see the things they have voted against in the past five years. If they voted against it then, it's in their platform now. End quote. Pearson, no slouch himself, would fire back at his own campaign event that day, stating, quote, Let's not have the country strangled by a single set of vocal cords, or beguiled by adjectival exuberance. End quote. The March 31, 1958 election would see Prime Minister John Diefenbaker turn his minority government into the largest government in Canadian history. The Progressive Conservatives would win 78.5% of the votes, a record that remains unmatched, and Diefenbaker's government would have an astounding 151-seat majority. Voter turnout was also a record that still stands to this day, with 79.4%. The Progressive Conservatives picked up 97 seats to win 208, the first time a party had won more than 200, while the Liberals collapsed for the second election in a row. They would lose 56 seats to finish with 48. The Cooperative Commonwealth Federation would lose 17 seats to finish with 8, and the Social Credit Party lost every seat, falling 19. With zero seats elected, the party would soon fade from Canadian politics. In every province across Canada, the Conservatives dominated. Only the Northwest Territories and Newfoundland gave the Liberals a majority. The Progressive Conservatives won every single seat in British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Nova Scotia, and Prince Edward Island. In Ontario, they won 67 seats while the Liberals picked up 14. But the most surprising was Quebec, which had abandoned the Conservatives decades ago. With St. Laurent gone, the province turned to Diefenbaker, giving him 50 seats to the 25 won by the Liberals. Pearson would concede defeat and state, quote, It is clear now that the country has given the majority to Mr. Diefenbaker and his supporters, which they requested. It is naturally disappointing that we are not successful, but it is well that one party now has the power, as well as the responsibility, in the House of Commons. End quote. M.J. Coldwell, leader of the CCF, fared no better than Mr. Lowe personally, although his party did survive with a very small representation. He lost his writing of Rosetown Bigger to a PC, and down also went the CCF's deputy leader, Stanley Knowles, whom friends and foes alike had considered as one of Canada's most gifted parliamentarians. Nevertheless, the supreme shock was reserved for the Liberals. Mr. Pearson himself was re-elected in Algoma East, but when the dust settled and the heads were counted, he found he was left with only four members of Mr. Saint-Laurent's once powerful Liberal cabinet. Diefenbaker was naturally jubilant after his win, and he would stay, quote, We will keep your faith and carry out our pledges and give good government, each to his action station, each to his sense of responsibility, 
At such a time as this, it is difficult to say more than our heartfelt thanks for this expression of the confidence and trust of the people of Canada. The jubilation at Mr. Diefenbaker's victory party defied description. When the cheers finally subsided, the Prime Minister restated his political credo. in action, where the men and women of the nation join together on behalf of that Canadianism, which after all is the desire of all of us. As with many elections, there are also some odd occurrences. One such incident happened on February 28th when the Liberal Party headquarters in Carleton were broken into and several desks and filing cabinets were ransacked. Several personal and private campaign correspondence were stolen. In Quebec, the RCMP would investigate irregularities in the voting list for Quebec South. Frank Power, the Liberal candidate in that riding, sent a telegram to the RCMP that stated, quote, Have proof that names have been fraudulently added to the electoral list during revision in revision districts numbers 4 and 5. Quebec South, investigation required immediately. End quote. There were three known investigations by the RCMP into voting irregularities across Canada in the election. In one community in Quebec, tempers flared between Liberal and Progressive Conservative supporters. The provincial police sent five cars out to deal with the violence that broke out at two rallies where 1,400 supporters of each party took to the streets. During the pre-election violence that broke out between the rival party supporters, a police officer was shoved, a Montreal citizen photographer was threatened, a man had a stone thrown at him by rival party supporters, and a police cruiser was rocked up and down. Now to Europe, where the Canadian election continues to make bold headlines. In London, the newspaper coverage is said to be unprecedented. To Gerald Clark. Most of the British papers today see the Conservative victory as a personal triumph for John Diefenbaker, and they put it down largely to his powerful oratory. The Manchester Guardian talks of Mr. Diefenbaker's fervent preaching and says that in his ecstasy, he has seen visions and reported what he saw in them, like an Old Testament prophet talking of the new Zion. But the papers also recognize a strong swing toward what the Times refers to as economic nationalism. The Liberals, especially under Mackenzie King, says the Times, were nationalist-minded, but in a different way. They jealously guarded Canada's independence by being wary of too close a political association with Great Britain. But now Mr. Diefenbaker is more concerned to stand up against economic subordination to the United States. The Times sees in this a hope for expanded trade between Canada and Britain. But at least two other newspapers, the Daily Telegraph and the Manchester Guardian, warn against possible dangers. The Guardian warns that however hard they try, Britain and other Commonwealth countries will not be able to replace the United States as the chief supplier of the Canadian market and the chief customer for her raw materials. No one visualizes any change in Canada's foreign policy, and the Daily Mail calls Mr. Diefenbaker among the leading statesmen of the world. This is Gerald Clark reporting to CBC Radio News from London. 
In Germany, too, the election is getting plenty of publicity to Omer Anderson in Bonn. Canada's election is big news in Germany this morning. Ask the headline in Cologne Runschau, newspaper of the Adenauer government, Did Canadians Vote Against Washington? The German press is commenting on Prime Minister John Diefenbaker's demand for protection of Canadian natural resources and for increased trade with Britain. The Germans are wondering where Canada's election leaves the German steel industry, which badly needs Canadian ore, and how Canada's election will affect Germany's sharp foreign trade rivalry with Britain, and Germany's hopes for increased trade with Canada. But the big question in Germany is this. Does Canada's election mean the beginning of a Western world trend, a trend which could shake Chancellor Adenauer's position? What Adenauer's foes call the Chancellor's Washington Me Too-ism. This is Omer Anderson reporting for CBC News from Bonn. In Vancouver, social credit candidate Bill Rose lost the election and then had to add insult to injury when a young man threw a rock through the windshield of his car while he was talking with his colleagues. This would also be the last election for M.J. Coldwell, who had served as the leader of the Cooperative Commonwealth since 1942. He would lose the seat he had held in Rosetown Bigger since 1935 amid the Conservative sweep. He would resign as leader in 1960, but continued to work with the party when it became the New Democratic Party in 1961. I hope you enjoyed that episode and my look at the election of 1958. Tomorrow, we're looking at the election of 1962. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. Again, if you like, you can support the podcast through Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking Donate. And I'd like to say thank you to all of my wonderful patrons. And if I mispronounce any names, I do apologize. Matthew Gartho, Lionel Romain, Dr. Bob Turner, one anonymous person who I really appreciate, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Shove, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roy, Luke Guess, J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, and Iris Gray. Information from Dynasties and Interludes, Canadian Encyclopedia, Diefenbaker, Canada Centre, Wikipedia, Maclean's, The Ottawa Citizen, and CBC. Thanks. We'll see you again next time. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone. Like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.